0: When the Nazis seized power through the Enabling Act of 1933 after the election, they are pretty anti Berlin and Berliners. The Berlins only voted about 30% roughly of Berlin votes in favor of Hitler in the 1933 election, which Hitler never forgives them for.
1: Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name is Oliver Webcarter and I'm the editor and your host. 2023 is the 750th birthday of that great city of Berlin and so to commemorate it we have Barney white author of A History of the City, joining me to discuss it. Barney is a historian and former senior army officer who was stationed in the city in the 80s. We look to Berlin's foundation, its experience during the Thirty Years' War, a conflict across German states that killed around 8 million, how it changed under the Hohenzollern kings, including Frederick the Great, and then under the Napoleonic occupation, before talking about Berlin's relationship with the Nazis, which you heard at the top there. Finally, we talk about Berlin as the bohemian city of David Bowie and other artists who found a home there in the 70s. I love Berlin and I can tell I have listeners there, so to you guys, this one's for you. If listeners have any suggestions for other city histories, do get in touch. I'm rather partial to Athens myself. Coming up, I've got the Year of Revolutions with Sir Christopher Clark. The film club continues on Tuesday with Margin Call on the 15th anniversary of the financial crash. Please do rate and review if you can and share the pod with anyone interested. Until then, I'll hand you over to me, talking with Barney White Spunner on the history of Berlin. Barney Whitespunner, welcome back. It's fantastic to have you on again. And we are going to be talking about your book, Berlin, the story of a city, which I was looking at the um, description from the publisher. And Berlin is described by your publisher as Europe's most fascinating city fascinating exciting city so I I mean for the purposes of this podcast that's exactly what it is (laughs) but so I I wanted to just sort of kick things off Berlin Berlin is about a thousand years old is that right is that about right which is great to know when it sort of when it began
0: yeah well thanks very much and um, it's wonderful to talk about Berlin Um, I mean Berlin's been there as a settlement as fishing villages so since time immemorial they we found Wendish remains and that on what is now Museum Island, but rarely the it really comes to preeminence in about 1415 when the Hohenzollerns make it their capital. Actually, Berlin takes its actual birthday from 1273 for that's the first time its name is recorded on a document, but it's it's rarely with the coming of a Hohenzollerns who, uh, when they buy the Mark of Brandenburg from. Emperor Sigismund, who is bust, as Holy Roman emperors always were, for 400 gold marks. or they move up Brandenburg and sort of looking for where to put their capital. And initially they look at other sites, but they then realise that what is then a fairly thriving commercial settlement that's developed around the twin f- fishing villages of Berlin and Köln, around the island on the River Spray, is really the ideal place. And they start to build their fortress, the Zwingberg, which is exactly on the site of um what becomes the 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 sort of Schloss, Berlin, Berliner Schloss, and is now exactly the site of the Humboldt Forum. So it's rarely from then that it sort of comes to, to preeminence. But Berlin remains quite a sort of small city in European terms, right up until the 17th century. So during the fourteen hundreds, fifteen hundreds, it's really quite provincial, and it's thought to be as such by the more developed German states, particularly the Saxons. There's always this rivalry between Saxony and Brandenburg, between Dresden and Berlin, uh, as to um, uh, as to which is the sort of the lead city. But that doesn't mean there was an awful lot going on there. And part of the reason I wanted to start this book then with the with the beginnings of Berlin is because so many of the trends, so many of the Things that happen afterwards have their roots in those two centuries. And there's a real tendency, I I find, in books of German history in general and Berlin history in particular to immediately sort of focus on the last few centuries, maybe from Frederick the Great onwards. But I think by doing so, you miss out on that hugely interesting and terribly important bit, which is when uh, many of the movements, trends, characteristics start.
1: Yes, well, that's absolutely right, because as I was looking through it, through the book the I mean particularly the period around uh you have the great elector Frederick William the first, yeah, and then of course the thirty Years War I mean berlin is 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 hugely affected by that, isn't it
0: yeah pe- hugely I mean I it's, um I think the thirty Years War. It still has an impact on Germany today. I think the Thirty Years' was such a cataclysmic event, and it's something that we slightly neglect, particularly in English schools, because we're always asked, "Was it a war of religion?" But actually, what it, on that exam, just, just
1: for did, the benefit of listeners, is, is that is it, you're going to, if I 16, get this wrong, 18, 16, 18, 16, 18,
0: 18. 18. right? So it starts with the wonderfully named defenestration of Prague when the Habsburg ambassadors are, are thrown out of the window in, in Prague and ends with the Treaty of Westphalia. And for the first 10 years, between about 1618 and 1628, Berlin and Brandenburg aren't really that affected by it. But from 1628, for the White the early 1640s, Brandenburg is absolutely crucified by marauding armies, imperial and, and, and Protestant. By the, particularly by the Swedes. And this thriving commercial centre that's sort of developing cultural movements and developing artistic talent, that's done very well trading, and people are really proud of it, you know, they've got a really good life going, there's sort an of utter desecration that comes from the Third Years' War. And it's beyond people's comprehension. They can't sort of understand why it's happened. And Berlin is reduced to well, under 5,000 people, I mean, about 2,000 houses. It's a cut in, literally, there's about half of it left. What was the population before? Population varies, but roughly 15, 20, 000, if 20,000, depending on how many of the outlying areas you take in. But what people find so difficult is well, what was all this for? I mean, it's actually, and they say, with some very bitter comments, this is a war to enrich soldiers. It's a war for the vanity of, of dukes. It's a war for the vanity of princes. If If you look at people writing in Germany afterwards. They always hark back to this. So Frederick the Great, who, again, may be no great author, but actually somebody whose opinion is obviously rather valuable, said that the 30 years war still dominated thinking in Germany during his reign, which is 100 years later. Schiller, the great Schiller, actually writes a treatise on the Thirty Years' War, almost before he writes anything else, almost as if you can't sort of start writing German literature unless you understand how dreadful this has been. And it's not just Brandenburg, of course, it's much wider in Germany. It's obviously awful in the Palatinate and Bavaria as well. And then you look even at modern German writing, you know, you look at plays like Mother Courage. I mean, Mother Courage actually was a subtler in the Thirty Years' War. So I think it is, I think you've got to, if you're looking at the history of Berlin, history of Germany, you can't just sort of gloss over that. And actually, has had such a huge impact. And then the great elector, say so Frederick William I, who effectively is the, the Margrave of Brandenburg, but becomes also Duke of Prussia. They're very good marriers the Hohenzollerns. they They worked out the marriage, European royal marriage market quite well. And through some judicious marrying between him, his father and his grandfather, they effectively bring uh, unite Prussia and Brandenburg or bring Brandenburg into Prussia as one, we can't say monarchy yet, but one as one country, if you like, which it will become a kingdom. And he is the most remarkable man. I mean, the Hermes is actually the most remarkable dynasty. We badly need a, a biography for Hermes all the way through. But Frederick William is not only sharp and incredibly efficient, but he's also visionary. So he rebuilds Berlin after the destruction of the Thirty Years' War. He surrounds it with these extraordinarily sophisticated ramparts on the sort of Vauban model, which will only lasts for 200 years. In fact. A lot of a funny zig wiggles on the S-bahn and the U-bahn routes now, are due because they have to go around the foundations of the Great Electors' fortifications. So beyond that, and beyond building up and that in developing the first Prussian army, he realizes that he's living in a Europe which is very intolerant. And as he's trying to get industry going, he sees Louis the Fourteenth revoking the Edict of Nantes. He sees this very talented French Huguenot community, of course, mostly were Calvinists rather than. Lutheran, And he is, of course, a Calvinist. He invites them into Prussia, but he's not just sort of inviting them. I mean, he says, right, here's this community, we'll go and get them. So he sets up an embassy, an almost sort of immigration service in Paris, much what Europe does now with you know, falls far short of what he managed to do. So the Huguenots are sort of told to go to Paris. They're given passports, they're given money. They're coming to Berlin or wherever, not all to Berlin, but not a lot to Berlin, where they're given houses or land. And by the end of his reign, Berlin is 25% French. But at the same time, he's doing the same thing with the Jewish population from Vienna. And the Habsburgs are going through one of their sort of periodic sort of Catholic naval gazing sessions they went through. And there's a two Jewish pogroms in Vienna, during his reign. And again, he extends friendship to the Jews, he gets leaders of a Jewish community in Vienna to to come and be interviews in Berlin, sets out the terms to them. And there's always been actually a flourishing Jewish population in Berlin. And Berlin's always been not totally, I'm afraid, but it's always been much more tolerant, it's always been much more emancipation of a Jewish population than in some European cities. So I'd love to say that after the great elector, you know, there is no more anti-Jewish movements, him, but that's not true. Of course, there are of course, we have a tragedy of the Second World War, which is a cataclysmic one. But um, so what you have to by then, by the end of, uh, let's say, by roughly, seven, roughly 1700, um, by the time the great elector dies and his son, Frederick I, takes over, you have got a city that's pretty well rebuilt. It's adequately defended both by physically and with an army. And it has got a flourishing uh, industrial base in the way that industries were then. So we're obviously way before the Industrial Revolution. So we're talking about cloth, porcelain, metalworking, which means that by 1700, you've already got a flourishing city. So when Frederick I's son takes over, he is able, if you like, to consolidate what his father's done He's able to say, look, you know, we've got the country back on its feet. We are now Prussia, a country. Uh, we're not just a little mark of Brandenburg. And Barney, Prussia is actually a pretty big landmass, isn't it? I mean, it's not just a small city-state. People forget that Prussia wasn't just the sort of swamps and forests beyond Pomerania that stretched off towards the Russian border. It is, of course, the area in the west of Germany. Eulich leaves a bit, there's now the Ruggerbeet Bielefeld, these areas right up to the Rhine were all part of Prussia. So Brandenburg like, had been surrounded by Prussia. It's now united. So if you look at a map of Prussia, it's, it's, vast, there, it's isn't it, country, really? stretching right across North Germany, coming second in area only to, 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 to the Habsburgs. So Frederick I is then able to say, right, what we now need is a royal capital for this country. Uh, we will make Berlin into a royal capital. He becomes the king. Uh, he makes himself a king through a slightly dodgy deal with the emperor by providing troops for the war for Spanish succession. So the poor old troops have a fairly rough time, but Frederick is allowed to call himself king in Prussia, uh, rather than all Prussia, because of uh, with the duke of the Prussian royals. He starts to build Berlin up. So where we've had the gloomy old Zwingberg Palace on the island, which I mentioned, that is beautified by Schluter and becomes a, a massive royal palace. And he builds Charlottenburg, the famous Charlottenburg, for Sophie Charlotte, his wife, who's a wonderful woman, described as the most wonderful princess, but sadly rather plump, which is rather unkind of a woman. But it's her who actually starts to develop the sort of salon idea in Berlin. And she starts to really develop music. She develops the theatre, writing. She sort of gathers at Charlottenburg a group of artists and authors around her. And although Frederick I actually treats him pretty awfully, he has endless mistresses. And actually, I mean, some of his attempts to sort of set up the Prussian royal sort of establishment are, are quite hysterical. I, I write about them quite a lot in the book. They're, they're so funny. They're, um, everything goes wrong at his coronation. It could possibly go wrong. <laughs> so you've had the great elector who's got the thing back in his feet, Frederick I, who's sort of made it royal. And then you have these two extraordinary kings, one after the other. Frederick William I as a king, rather than, you know, as a Frederick the Great Elector was an elector, not a king, who is the most extraordinary man. Much I studied him at A level. He's I wouldn't want him as a father. Well, you probably wouldn't, actually, if for not. And he was pretty horrible to Frederick the Great, and um pretty horrible to, to his daughter, who said that in, in Berlin she only had to suffer the torments of purgatory. But at Wushausen, where he actually lived. She had to suffer the terrors of hell, but he is again. He didn't live in Berlin. He did do a huge amount again for the Prussian economy and for Berlin. And of course, because he was such a bizarre character, and as you say correctly, say we won't have him much as a father. His actual real achievements as King of Prussia get forgotten, and everybody, you know, has written to the nines about Frederick the Great. I mean, Frederick the Great must have been one of the most biographed. Kings in Europe, but very few people have written about uh, about Frederick William. Is it a sort of Philip of Macedon,
1: Alexander the Great type, where he ref- Frederick William reforms the army to enable? Yes, Frederick- I think
0: that's it's a very good analogy that Actually, I mean because it really is. It is Frederick William who does reform. The, I mean he leaves Frederick the Great an army of about eighty thousand soldiers. And paid for. I mean, he doesn't leave a massive debt. He does a huge amount for the armaments industry, which is, you know, some people nowadays would say it's a bad thing. Well, actually, then it was a thoroughly good thing. It had to be done. And of course, it employed a huge number of people in Berlin. He uses military contracts to get the cloth industry developed. He does also, but he also has a huge amount of building. So he Tim who really starts developing Potsdam, although he lives at Koenigsesterhausen, he builds a hunting lodge at Potsdam. Which Frederick the Great will take, take on and turn into Sans Souci. He's responsible for the, for the first Berlin Wall. So this is a, known as the customs wall, and it's a wall that effectively surrounded Berlin. So they could attack goods coming in and out. And the famous gates in Berlin now, like the Brandenburg Gate, you know, are actually the gates, but not that actual structure. That structure comes out later, but the actual gateway was uh, they refer to gates on that wall. So as you go round Berlin now, all the various tours that you you see are actually um, customs wall gates. The uh, cynics would say he actually built the wall to stop his soldiers deserting so he could keep them in, and there may be some truth in that. But effectively, it was a customs wall. Königswesterhuisen, if you go to Berlin, is the most extraordinary place. I mean, it's amazing that it survived because it was on one of Konev's approach uh, routes in 1945. And the Russians came straight through the village, but luckily there was no resistance there, so we just went through it and kept going. But the house has got the original furniture and paintings in it, so you can go up and sit in the Collegium room, and you can imagine all of them all sitting, sitting there smoking their pipes. The poor old Austrian ambassador, who hated smoking, had to pretend to smoke. He had to sit there with a sort of empty pipe in his mouth, pretending to smoke it, because if he didn't join in, he wouldn't be taken seriously. Wonderful. So, um, and then Frederick the Great, when he inher- inherits, first part of Frederick the Great's reign is basically spent consolidating, expanding Prussia. Um, I mean, in the endless wars with the Habsburgs, taking over Silesia. But in terms of his relationship with Berlin, he doesn't like Berlin at all. Frederick the Great doesn't rarely do German, he does French in Germany. And he sees France as a cultural model, hence his relationship with Voltaire, the music with opera, and the French language. But he also sees it's a governmental model. I mean, he's very influenced by Louis XIV, who's obviously long dead by that stage. But Louis XV is still, if you like, continuing the same pattern of government at Versailles. And although Sans Souci and what he creates at Potsdam is is not a Versailles at all, it's absolutely the opposite. It's a, a small, informal, completely charming, It is the most wonderful place to visit. But the point is, it's outside Berlin, it's French. And while he is fighting his wars and developing his system of government and his little sort of coterie of of Frenchness, if you like, at Potsdam, Berlin is beginning to become the centre of the German Enlightenment. It's beginning to become a definitely German city, as opposed to just a Prussian Brandenburg city. And that's really very important because of what will happen in the future. So Frederick the Great can't detest the German language. He says it's illogical. He, won't, he He speaks it, obviously, because of the army. But although well, his language of command, the army, is French. He thinks German literature is insignificant. Uh, German music is sort of barbaric. But while he's thinking that, we have this extraordinary what the Germans call Aufklärung it's sort of Aufklärung means lots of different things in Germany but effectively it's the exploration it's a renaissance if you like in German-ness but you know at the beginning of the 19th century if there was going to be a German empire it was going to be a Germany as opposed to a set of states I think most people would have told you the capital of that would have been in Vienna I don't think many people would have told you it was going to be in Berlin before we it. get
1: to get to napoleon's invasion i was just interested yeah. about the culture of the city is it now developing into a one that we would maybe recognize as if not german then certainly a sort of a um a, a berlin characteristic yeah I, no, I'm, absolutely because of definitely, all the immigrants definitely
0: then. yeah it's definitely becoming german so in, if we look at some of the the people writing and, and practicing you know, we look at the Lessings. Um, we know we look at the the Nicolais, We look at, um, well, maybe the, we look at the shadow and Quadriga. You look at the Brandenburg Gate and Langens who who developed it. And then uh, you look mainly, perhaps, at Schinkel, maybe the greatest sort of German Enlightenment or greatest exponent of a German Enlightenment. And he's the most extraordinary man, Schinkel. I mean, he not only he starts off designing theatre sets he designs furniture, he paints, and he designed the first Iron Cross, which is the Iron Cross was, was instituted to reward people's resistance to the French. Really? Which is often conveniently forgotten in sort of 19th and 20th century German history. Yeah. And the first one was given to the Queen, Queen Louise. Schinkel's really well known for his architecture. And if one man has had an influence on... It'd be like, well, the German Enlightenment, the German architectural style. And on Berlin, it's going to be Schinkel.
1: And as, as we move into the, the Napoleonic Wars, I guess this is where, well, they're effectively under occupation, aren't they?
0: Yeah. And it's a pretty nasty occupation. If you look to what Napoleon did to Prussia, two things stand out. One, it's politically, I think, extraordinarily short-sighted. But secondly, it's also brutal. So he effectively cuts Prussia's population in half. And he drags the Kaiser, who takes his small son, who will end up being Kaiser Willem I. And he makes the the king and his son and Queen Louise stand on the bank of the River Niemann while he and Bazar carve up Prussia on that barge at Tilsit. it. It's extraordinary because that is small boy who stands on the riverbank is the same man who will eventually stand in the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles and declare the German Empire over the, the, the bones of, of the French Republic. It's extraordinarily... Is this it's the beginning of a French-Prussian rivalry then? Yes, I think it is. And French-German. It, what's so interesting about that is I don't think it had really been there that much before. I mean, obviously, the Thirty Years' War, the the French became involved, but actually, the French troops didn't get in Thirty Years' War didn't sort of go up quite so much into North Germany and Brandenburg. Yeah, you know, they're more focused on the Rhine. But I think Napoleon is responsible. Yes, I think you're spot on. I think he is responsible for this, this antipathy that you know, will go right on then up for, for 150 years. But it, it's it's so short-sighted because Napoleon couldn't have possibly thought it was ever going to last. I mean, and one of the interesting side effects of it is the creation of a King's German Legion. So many Prussians were just so infuriated by French arrogance, um, leave Prussia and come and form regiments in the British Army, and the King's German Legion will fight uh, very successfully under Wellington in Spain, and then very particularly successfully at Waterloo. Berlin itself, it's very arrogant, and there's a real resistance against it, so that so girls who go out with French officers are um, not quite tared and feather, but they are completely sort of sidelined. You know, people who invite French officers into their houses are ostracized, and eventually, you know, the French are comprehensively defeated, but it's with many casualties. And uh, that, of course, is the the other thing which is so important about the expulsion of the French is that it's. Because the Prussian army has been largely taken over by the French or be disbanded, it is the it is the Landwehr, it is the, the the volunteer forces, the volunteer army, that takes a huge amount of the credit justifiably for having got rid of Napoleon. And that's where the colours of a German flag from today come from. The the red, gold, and black comes from the the um, Landwehr uniform. But the idea of that German culture is rooted in a deeper, older sort of fresher, cleaner Germany. It, so you have the Wanderlust, the Wanderlust movement uh, with, with uh, walking, getting out into the countryside, the idea of rediscovery of German values and the idea that it's these German values that have allowed you to get together and defeat Napoleon. And what's important is they will be perverted by, later by the Nazis into Nazi culture. So sort of revoltingly exemplified by people like Goebbels and and Himmler. That's why Nazism is clever, however nasty it is, because it actually is seen to articulate uh, a lot of these feelings and a lot of these values, a lot of this idea of German-ness that harks back to getting rid of Napoleon.
1: And then Berlin during the the 19th century, um, I mean, you get the development, obviously, the unification of Germany. um, And uh, it's interesting to hear how Berlin, because that's when Berlin becomes... Because Konigsberg is the capital of Prussia. Yeah, yeah and,
0: well, it's the capital of Prussia sure Frederick I. Konigsberg and Prussia is Lutheran. The Herms Hollands are Calvinist. They, there is a very strong anti Calvinist feeling in Konigsberg. I mean, so much so they refuse to let the great elector remove his father's body for burial um, for quite some time because they say they're not going to have a Calvinist, <laughs> Calvinist service. They are very mean with money. So actually it's not, and also they're in the wrong place for this new kingdom of Prussia, because go back to what I was saying before, you know, this now stretches from the Rhine through to the, you know, the almost of what we call the Russian border.
1: Konigsberg is East Prussia, which is now part of Russia.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it is. It's Kaliningrad, the minute, yeah. So you, you you know actually Berlin is central to that. Berlin isn't actually central to modern Germany at all. Berlin's right to the east of modern Germany, but actually to old Prussia, Berlin is in the middle, and Königsberg wasn't. So it's not an attractive place for the Hohenzollerns. And then and
1: then so with during the during the nineteenth century, we get unification of of Germany, and Berlin yeah. is is the capital.
0: Yeah, and that has a big impact. And um, it really, t- t- two things. To comment on with that first is that it makes berlin the financial center of germany which it hasn't been up until then and that has a huge impact it means that the government institutions that were previously just prussian now the german institutions are going to be in berlin and the reichstag is is built that great building hugely difficult uh, we always tease the Berliners, that they shouldn't worry. It's taken so long to get their new airport functional. It took it, it took about fifteen years to get the Reichstag built. The other reason Berlin is so preeminent is that it has become the the biggest city in Europe, one of the biggest cities, fastest growing city in the world, due to the Industrial Revolution. But during the eighteen thirties and forties and fifties. You know, the Industrial Revolution rarely takes off. So most German, most houses in Berlin have electricity before they have running water. I mean, it's, um, so. but what, of course, it does create is a, is a huge underclass, no different to any other city in Europe. Any, because Berlin's expanded so fast, the underclass is less well provided for. They they sorted out by the end of the 19th century, Berlin actually has decent hospitals, decent education, and it boils over, as in 1848, with the revolution. And it will, interestingly, make Berlin increasingly socialist. So by the time you get to 1914, uh, Berlin's about three-quarters socialist. More in the centre, funnily enough, than on the outskirts. The outskirts would tend to be more white-wing, more wireless, and actually, interestingly, later more Nazi. Uh, But the centre of Berlin is pretty solidly left and it will remain left right up under the Nazis as well.
1: Well, I just wanted to explore that during the Nazi period, because it's known as the less enthusiastic about Nazism. But I just uh, you've 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 mentioned which parts of the city are more keen on the Nazis than than not. It would just be interesting to to,
0: um, just explore that a little bit further. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Well, in 1918, Berlin effectively revolts against, well, the Kaiser's, by November, the Kaiser's gone. Berlin is, there is a revolution against, let's say, the various interim governments. It is a socialist city. Those revolutions are put down in a bloody way by what's left of a German army, the Freikorps, uh, but basically formed units. And so in the 1920s, you have this standoff. Between socialist Berlin, many of the leaders whom we will see again in 1945, men like Ulbricht, you have a a socialist tradition which is is very strong, and many socialists uh, would actually say that it is actually, but it's a revolution that but should have been successful. They sort of see it as, if you like, the in the terms of Marxist development, that was the the first stages of it, and they therefore saw the transfer of power to East Germany to you know, to the Soviet system after the Second World War was the logical next stage of that. And of course, the Nazis and the right take a totally opposite view. But during Berlin, during the end of the 1920s, as the Nazis are beginning to come to power, and, of course, the Nazis don't start in Berlin. You know, they start in the south of Germany move up there. But you have a, a series of really vicious street battles going on between the socialists and the Nazis. And you probably know from Christopher Isherwood's sort of great novels, where he writes about them actually so movingly. But it means that when the Nazis seize power through the Enabling Act of 1933 after the election, they are pretty anti-Berlin and Berliners. The Berlins only voted about 30% roughly of Berlin votes in favour of Hitler in the 1933 election, which Hitler never forgives them for. Uh, and they do unforgivable things like not turn out in a sort of adoring crowds to clap him and cheer him. And you'll notice that the great rallies, great Nazi rallies, aren't in Berlin in the 1930s; they're in Nuremberg because Nuremberg can be relied on to be a you know, good South German Nazi-supporting crowds, uh, which Berlin can't. Uh, when Hitler invade, when the announcement's made of invasion of Poland in 1939, you know, Hitler is infuriated at driving back. Have a chancery, nobody turns out to chair. It's just the streets are deserted.
1: Do you, do you uh, think that lack of reaction influenced Hitler when he was so fatalistic by the end and was quite happy to see the German people being killed? Because the only German people he was really seeing much of were, were in Berlin?
0: Well, I think there might easily be something in that, yeah. I mean, he loathed the place, as did Goebbels, from Love, who was the guy, like, he made Goebbels, a guy lighter. Like and of course, he and Speer had this great scheme to ag- aggrandize Berlin. He said it's not a suitable city to be capital of a thousand-year Reich. And Germania was this design. And you can see it. It's actually it was a modeler in the Berlin History Museum. Thank God they never built it. It was going to be a vast hall built at the end. And inside that hall on the dome was going to be carved the names of every German soldier killed in the First World War, except the Jewish soldiers killed in the First World War. It, it was on a sort of scale of vulgarity, you know, about 100 out of 100 in its ghastliness. And it, it would probably have been actually, you know, taken forever to do. They probably thought they were going to do it state save Labour. There are some things that the Nazis built in Berlin which have endured and are successful. The Olympic Stadium, Hitler's bunker itself has gone. Now a Chinese takeaway on Wilhelmstrasse, uh, despite the fact that endless busloads of tourists traipse around trying to find it. Hitler was very rarely in Berlin. He rarely came back to his Berlin bunker at the end. He was either in Bavaria or in his Eagle's Nest, and he spent an awful lot of the war in a, particularly once the invasion of Russia started in um, in, in the Wolfslauer in, in East Prussia. So he's never really there much anyway. And Goebbels is is there, as little as he possibly can be. And the German resistance is strong in Berlin, uh, which is hugely to Berlin's credit. So what's so tragic, really, is that this city, which loathes the Nazis probably more than any German city, is crucified by the war, by Hitler's war. It's crucified by our bombing, by Americans by day later on, but then, of course, by the Soviet invasion which is incredibly bloody and destructive I mean it's not that is not a clean neat sort of seizure of a capital city it is a, a, with, with no attempt to do anything other than destroy the lair of the fascist beast and with no regard given to casualties on either side I mean the Russians lose hundreds of thousands as as I'm sure people know um, in, in that operation and so the poor old Berliners and terribly well covered in Anthony Beaver's book about the Second World War, and also in that book he edited called A Woman in Berlin, about which is a marvellous book. It's, well, marvellous, it's terribly sad, but I mean, it is incredibly sort of emotive and interesting, the story of a young woman living in Berlin. She's lost her boyfriend, the Eastern Front, on her own, and how the Russians treat her and how the population of Berlin react to another brutal occupation.
1: Moving into the Cold War then, Giles Melton joined the podcast to talk about the airlift and, and the immediate aftermath. So I just wanted to go a little bit f- beyond the immediate years after World War II. Yeah. And and to when the the wall goes up and then, uh, so we're into the 60s and, um,
0: 60s, and three
1: the 70s. 70s yeah. yeah. And then I think you
0: arrive in the 80s. Yeah, I, mean, I was there the moment. late 70s, early 80s I was there. I remember it well, and uh, part of the reason I wrote the book, because, you know, they had such an impact on me, the city. It's one of those cities in Europe that a uh, rally does get, sort of emotionally get you. I mean, you—you you, they always say a typical Berliner is one who's just arrived at the railway station, but it's very true. As soon as you step into the city, you are a Berliner, you're part of it. You're part of that feeling. But, yeah, so I think the uh, 1670s are, they are an incredibly difficult time, fairly obviously, because of the war are a horrible time for East Berlins again fairly obviously not just because of the political repression, but also because materially they're beginning to fall behind the West and very obviously due to doing so. It's um not that easy for West Berlin either. And this idea that West Berlin is, some sort of paradise while East Berlin is uh, on an next stop hell is is inaccurate. There is no doubt that you know, there are, an, are a number of East Berliners who accept the regime, who feel they identify what it's trying to do. Uh, they uh, don't necessarily look at the West and think, this is all tremendous, we wish we were like that. They actually slightly look down on the West and see it as shallow. Um, and that's not just swallowing you know, Soviet and Ulbricht and propaganda. Yeah, there's obviously a bit of that. But it goes a bit deeper. So actually, when you get to 1989, there's about a quarter of East Berlin who really aren't at all keen on what's happening. We go back to the 60s and 70s in West Berlin. It's difficult for the West Berlin government to get people to commit, uh, both in terms of their careers and uh, commercially, to a city which people still have considerable doubts about its future. Because if you're going to invest in Germany... You're going to get a factory going. Berlin was an industrial city until the Second World War. After the Second World War, it becomes a commercial a banking service city. Nobody's going to invest in industry there when you've got to get your goods out through the Soviet zone, particularly when you've got the expensive Soviet airlift. And in the 60s and 70s, an awful lot of young people say, Why do I want to make my career here? You know, we don't know what's going to happen. Look at the great economic success of West Germany with all its access to European and Western markets, we'll go there. And you get to the extent of the Bond government having to subsidize Ber- the Berlin government quite considerably. So money is given to, to Berliners and, and tax breaks to actually actually stay there. Uh, and also, you know, you've got to almost completely replicate in Berlin. A sort of set of institutions, most of which are in East Berlin. So not only has East Berlin got the sort of main government buildings, it's got the Schloss, it's got Museum Island, uh, it's got the Unter den Linden, it, it, it's got the old sort of heart of, of the capital. But it's also got the cultural heart of the capital. It's got the theatres and the operas. So West Berlin and the galleries. So West Berlin has got to replicate those. And it does so quite successfully, but it always has that slight feeling of being temporary. In many ways, it gives you an incredibly warm feeling. I remember going in as you cross from the zone, as we called it. So you came over the inner german border and you went by train or car in, into the perimeter of West Berlin. And you crossed from that grey, empty, dull, threatening atmosphere of East Germany into this bright, sort of almost like consumer heaven of, of West Berlin. But you never actually felt that you were going into something that was necessarily that deeply rooted, despite the extraordinarily successful efforts of men like Reuter and Willy Brandt, who were both the great mayors of West Berlin. And obviously it's the same going into East Berlin, coming back, you cross Checkpoint Charlie and you wander on East Berlin. And it's, it's like sort of going into a sort of Scandinavian horror movie. I mean, it's endless sort of dark, empty buildings, people in, in threadbare sort of coats, shuffling on with the collars turned up, not looking at you. You know, the shops with sort of pyramids of cans of something or other, but you know, that's all that's in the window. Yes, there are, because it's the showcase of the DDR, there's theatre, there are restaurants, but the whole place you know, has a, a threatening feeling about it. The buildings are still all potmarked with bullets I poles. Actually, they are even now. Of course, the West's also. It, it doesn't necessarily, the young population did not necessarily go along with, with what their government are doing. So you've got ex- very violent student demonstrations going on as well. And we're around the time of the Bader-Meinhof, aren't we? Yeah, the Bader-Meinhof is operating exactly that. You have this sort of cultural bohemianism, if you like, taken to almost, you know, to an ext- extent far beyond. It's a far more liberal, if you like, um, some would say licentious society than Paris or London or anywhere. And we were chatting about Bari and uh, living there. The great thing about Berlin is, you know, it is the most unjudgmental city. You can almost do anything in in Berlin, sort of providing it's legal.
1: We're running out of time. So I just wanted to bring up one uh, one thing that makes German politicians a lot more conscious of... Russia the influence of Russia then perhaps we in the in further western Europe um, in France and certainly here in Britain we I don't think we appreciate quite as much is how close Berlin is to the east yeah and and how that influences decision making in Germany and we're, we're quite damning against German politicians for some of the decisions or lack of decisions they've been making over Ukraine and I just wondered if that's because of their proximity to Russia.
0: I, I think it's got to it's got to be a huge part of it, hasn't it? And because where you are, you know, your geography is almost where you start your politics. And I think people do. I'm, you know, I've always thought of the two great German capitals, Vienna and Berlin. You know, Vienna to me has always got one eye towards the east and towards Turkey, and uh, what well, it did have, and perhaps not so much now. But I mean, for years, the Habsburgs always looking over their shoulder towards Turkey, and Berlin was always a its shoulder towards Russia. And uh, I think that is absolutely true. And I think if you sit in London or Paris, you have a very different feel to the problems of the world. Now, I'm not saying Angela Merkel didn't make mistakes in her energy policy, and I'm a great Merkel fan, but you, know, you can never imagine Bismarck allowing Germany to become completely dependent on Russian energy, can you? No. I mean, that's just sort of inconceivable. Whereas, yeah, I mean, I'm absolutely with you. I mean, I think there is a tendency sometimes among German politicians to sort of try and forget that. I think Merkel genuinely sort of believed that we were beyond Russia being the a, a, a threat it's turned out to be. But your point is a very accurate one. And of course, what's interesting too is that a lot of German politicians didn't want the capital to get back to Berlin from Bonn after unification. Uh, And the vote in the Bundestag in Bonn was only narrowly carried because they said Berlin is a militaristic city. It was the home of Prussian militarism. It was the home of Nazi militarism, which, of course, Berliners find laughable because Berlin its capital of Prussia. It was the most un-Prussian city. It's a city of immigrants, as we've discussed. And it was the most anti-Nazi city in Germany. So... Part of this is the old German divide, and they say it goes back to the bits of Germany that the Romans occupied and colonised. Adenauer always said that he could, he couldn't. Whenever he crossed the, the Elbe and went into Brandenburg and Pomerania, he had to put the blinds down on his railway carriage because it reminded him of Asia. There's a deeper divide in this. What I think Berlin's done terribly successfully lately, since unification is to be a model to which the rest of Germany can aspire because, okay, it sits to the East and therefore is very conscious of the pressures of the East. It's made immigration work in a way that many other German cities haven't so successfully. It's got that sort of cosmopolitan German, yes, capital of Germany, but actually a cultural hub and a multi-ethnic hub and a very tolerant society and i think actually as a city it's really now a city that sets an example to, to modern germany it's got huge problems i mean i i think the biggest problem in berlin at the moment is when it's, it's the price of property and you could argue that with many other european cities but in in berlin it is becoming unaffordable germans are now a lot of germans not just germans a lot of brits and, and others as well have second homes in berlin now And that was always a sort of French-British tradition. The French always had a house in Paris, Brits had a house in London. That never didn't happen in Berlin. You had a house if you were working for the government. Otherwise, you stayed in your, your, it was much more regional. But now, a lot of Germans have a flat in Berlin, or a house in Berlin, and house prices are becoming exorbitant and beyond the reach of the, the immigrant population who have always come into the city. And I think that is a problem. But just, Generally, yeah, I, I do think it gives politics a different slant because of where it is, but I think it's quite a positive influence. I think it's a positive factor, but it does. Well, Barney,
1: that's been fantastic. Thank you so much. The book, which I should have mentioned at the start, is our book of the month at the moment, so we'll uh, be promoting that over the next few weeks. And thank you very much for coming on to talk about the, this great always-
0: A huge pleasure, Oliver. Thank you very much indeed. I much enjoyed. What author doesn't enjoy talking about his books? (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad to hear
1: it. Delighted to hear it. Thanks very much. Thanks so much for listening. I do hope that inspires some of you to visit. Plenty more content coming up, including Roman history, Revolutionary Springs in the 19th century. The Film Club will continue on Tuesday and much, much more. Until then, thank you and good night.